The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Well, I've enjoyed suffering with you all for the last 12 weeks or so. It's been a, a gear change for me to be teaching like this and not with, uh, with kids next door. So I'm glad that y'all have... Uh, have persevered through this. Let's pray and then we will talk about our contentment while suffering. Father, we're grateful for who you are and for what you have done for us through Christ, what you are doing in us now uh, by your grace and what you yet will do. And we we are thankful that you have made so many wonderful promises to us Um, that we can have hope and assurance of who you are and the good that you mean to do in us and through us and for us, not despite suffering, but through the trials and difficulties that you providentially bring into our lives. We thank you that we can entrust ourselves to you, our faithful creator, and that you equip us for the good works that you have prepared for us. I pray that... uh, this class that we have, we have gone through together would be used by you to equip us with your word, strengthen our resolve for every good work, um, that we would shine light in dark places, even when we are walking through dark places, that we would be reminded of your goodness and faithfulness, of your sovereignty, of your faithful plans, um, your wise providence, and that that would be a supply of hope and endurance for us to run the race. Uh, We thank you for this time we have today as we consider contentment. Uh, We pray that you would grant us supernaturally by your Spirit a contentment and a joy in you that enables us to uh, cling to your promises while we suffer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So just a review as we normally do of the last few times we've been together. We said some weeks ago that suffering showcases God's glory and that prompts us to proclaim the gospel, to live with integrity and trust in God's justice. So if, we're, if we are in agreement that the glory of God is to be paramount in what motivates us and what we are seeking, then if if suffering is providentially used by God to showcase His glory, then we ought to seek to leverage that for the glory of God in the proclamation of the gospel, in lives of holiness, and in trusting ourselves to the Lord. We talked about persecution a few weeks ago. and We talked about persecution as being unique to followers of Jesus and faithfulness under it being essential for our spiritual growth and glorifying God. And we talked about one of the unique things about persecution is that it's a, it's a form of suffering that we have some measure of control over in that if believers are, are being oppressed or persecuted for their identity with Jesus, then there is the temptation to not identify with Jesus in order to be relieved of that. Um, you can't you know, choose whether or not you get cancer. You're not choosing whether or not you get into the car accident. You're not you know, choosing to lose your job. But believers are faced with the temptation to choose whether or not they want to identify 
with Jesus publicly. Even our sermon series in Hebrews, um, that, that book seems to be addressed to a people who were tempted to withdraw from Christian community and retreat back into Judaism where the, the fire of persecution had not yet reached. So faithfulness under persecution is essential for our spiritual growth and glorifying God. We talked about persecution in terms of kind of like a spectrum, that what we experience here and now um, may be relatively minor. I say relatively, you know, compared to brothers and sisters around the world who have property seized, thrown in jail, their lives are at risk. But that's not to minimize or negate the oppression, harassment, opposition that believers face here. We talked about that in higher education. We talked about that in different vocational contexts, even within families, opposition to the gospel. Um, and so only the Lord knows what the future of that is in our, in our country, in our context. But we want to be committed to faithfulness to the Lord and not shrinking back from our identity with Him and with one another. And then um, last week, we did something that I should have done probably early on in this study was um, kind of related to the first one, that the whole Bible testifies to the fact that God's glory is supreme in His intentions and should be in ours as well. So we had kind of a, a scripture blitz last week of just seeing throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament God saying, for, for my sake, for the sake of my name, for the sake of my glory, I'm doing these things. So that's a, a snapshot of where we've been the last few weeks. Talking about uh, contentment now, if you're following on your packet, we see in Scripture that waiting is the normal posture for the people of God. Waiting is the normal posture for the people of God. A couple references from Psalms and Romans. Psalm 27, 14, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And then in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So when you think about waiting for the Lord, I'll just throw this out there for, for y'all. What do you think of when you think about Scripture's imperative, the command, wait for the Lord, or then, you know, Paul in Romans is talking about the Christian posture of, of waiting for what he says in verse 23, adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. When you think about waiting for the Lord, what does that bring to mind for you? So, um, not, not like a fatalistic, just, you know, Whatever happens, happens. You know, I'm stationary. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for the Lord is at work in you, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. So there's the, the promise that the Lord is at work in us, but then He gives us work to do. And I think what y'all are saying is kind of related in that we're, we're trusting in the Lord to be the one who is ultimately the mover and the doer and the actor. 
but he has ordained that we have responsibility towards him and others, and he gives us, he, he equips us with his word and with other means of grace for those things. So I think there's certainly an element of trust. There is not um, just sort of the, the fatalistic, well, throw my hands up in the air and just do nothing, because whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. Um, we can see in his word what he means for us to do in the strength that he supplies. Think about you know some, some people in Scripture, Abraham and Sarah waiting for the Lord's fulfillment of his promise in providing a son. Um, the Israelites are, are wandering in the wilderness, um, of course, self-inflicted, um, but they are, they are waiting on getting to the promised land and that next generation going in. The people of God waiting for the Messiah to come. I was, um, I think I must have heard a sermon or a devotional or something on this recently, but um, when, the, when the apostles, they, they see Jesus and you, the, the excitement, like we think we found the Messiah, like to be living at that time and the fulfillment of God's promises that he's here. Um, and for us, waiting for the Lord to return. That's not just a sitting doing nothing waiting. Myra talked about readiness. Jesus is clear of how we are to live while waiting for his return. It's not doing nothing. It's living lives of holiness. It's proclaiming the gospel. It's making disciples. He has that authority, and he tells us, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he promises his presence with us. So waiting includes trusting, it includes readiness, it's not fatalistic, I think those are all, all true and helpful things to think about in terms of waiting. But that idea of waiting seems to be the normal posture for the people of God. It's not just immediate answers, immediate resolutions. When you think particularly about suffering, it's frequently not just a, okay, and then it's over and you move on. The Lord uses that time and that waiting and going through those things to produce good in us. Sure, and um, that, that's a good reminder that we need to be anchored in the Word of God so we actually know what He has promised to us. Um, the, we can, we're going to talk about discontentment in a second. We run the risk of sinning by discontentment and impatience in that way by clinging to promises that maybe aren't actually promises. So he's promising to bring them into the promised land, but that's, that's his time, and that, that's his will. And you have the impatient Israelites wanting to get ahead of him and his plans, and that only causes more waiting. That, that he, he judges them for it. So we want to make sure that we are... Waiting is clinging to the promises of God. So we need to know what the promises of God are. What has he actually promised to me in this? Has he promised that I will get this job? Has he promised that I will be healed from this? Has he promised that all my relationships will be smooth? Has he promised that he will save my wayward child? What has he actually promised to me? We want to make sure we're actually clinging to his word and not clinging to things that we wish were true. Or in the time that we wish they were. Yet, yeah, so our 
our cultural context and technological conveniences have us more oriented towards impatience and discontentment. Because, I mean, between... I mean, this thing right here can access space and back in seconds. I heard a comedian, he was talking about how impatient we get with our smartphones, and he said, give it a second, it has to access space. Like, that's remarkable. I mean, in our pockets, we have access to all the information anybody could ever want just in the, the, you know, the click of a button. And it's only contributed to, I think, our, our tendency. It appeals to our, our, our sinful tendencies towards discontentment and impatience. Um, well, that's a, um, that connects to our, our, our next thing in your packet, that discontentment is a challenge that can arise from waiting. I don't have Psalm 73 in your packet, I don't think, but we've talked about Psalm 73 multiple times. The psalmist says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. So he's describing his envy and discontentment in seeing the apparent successes and prosperity of those who had no regard for the Lord. Um, down in verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. So in having the Lord's perspective on them, he's able to see more clearly how good it is for him to know the Lord, to wait on the Lord, and not to be envious of those who don't. But as we wait, there is the, the, the temptation towards discontentment, especially if we're going through a season of prolonged suffering. Um, we can be discontent with what we have from God, or perhaps we can be envious of the apparent lack of suffering in the lives of other people that we know. We can be envious of those who seem to have it better than we do. So discontentment can take many forms in terms of our own inward bitterness or outward envy and covetousness of those around us. So it is like Timothy mentioned a few minutes ago, something that we need to be on guard against in the midst of suffering, especially long seasons of suffering. Yeah, I don't think we need help uh, doing that. Suffering can ratchet that up even more. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, and it's not even just uh, something that you might categorize under the umbrella of suffering, but you're you're pursuing uh, wisdom. You want to you know be a responsible steward of the things the Lord gives you, and there's that temptation to have that glance to the side of what does everybody else have? How is everybody else doing? Um, and then suffering can ratchet that up to another level of covetousness, envy, when we think that people may have it better than we do. 
only when you have car problems. You know, maybe this is a selfish thing, but you know, Timothy and I are in the same small group, and we, for a long time, we, we've kind of commiserated with, with varying car problems. So I'm not glad that you have car problems, but it is nice to not be alone. You know, I appreciate that there's someone who understands. Um, but as soon as you get yours fixed, then I'm going to be like, man, how come Timothy's got his car working? So contentment. What is contentment? I thought this brief definition was helpful. Contentment is satisfaction in the Lord, which is independent of our circumstances or surroundings. Satisfaction in the Lord, which is independent of our circumstances or surroundings. Philippians 4, 10-13. You're familiar with this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think it's interesting. My, my gut feeling about myself is... Being in need is where I need to learn contentment. I think it's interesting that Paul gives us both sides. He's learned how to abound. I think that's very telling that we need contentment in the Lord on both sides of that. In, in want, in need, and in plenty, and in abounding. We recognize, I think, the temptations when we are feeling the need. There's tendencies towards despair, um, bitterness, envy. We've talked about that. But what temptations do you face in seasons where you have plenty and when you're abounding? Yeah. Yeah, I got this. Things are great. Job's going awesome. The bank account, the 401k is looking, looking so good. You know, the marriage just, you know, just vistas of bliss everywhere I, I look. But if you don't know how to abound, then you will not be content. And when those things are taken away, you will see your discontentment because your satisfaction may have been in the plenty and not in the Lord. So it can cause us, uh, like Jeannie said, to not recognize our dependence and need for the Lord. So experience, the Lord would use that to teach us how to be brought low and how to abound. And he says, I have learned the secret, and the secret is the most out-of-context verse in the whole Bible. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Our need is met by Christ's strength. His strength supplies what we need to be content in the Lord no matter what our circumstances are. Uh, this is a quote from an old dead Puritan talking about contentment being that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to 
and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So if you're filling in the blanks, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Gotta love the Puritans. They just chose their words so carefully. I I love it. So we talk about our, our frame of spirit and what does that produce? Submitting to and delighting in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Contentment, and this kind of gets on to some of the things that we've already talked about, these next two. Contentment is not opposed to godly ambition, but it is opposed to selfishness. Some passages from Romans, 1 Timothy, and Philippians. Paul says in Romans 15, 20, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul had aspirations, he had desires, specifically to preach the gospel in places where Christ had not already been preached. 1 Timothy 3.1, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There is the implication that men would aspire to lead in specific ways in the church. There is an aspiration. I think that's even part of the qualifications for this office, is the desire to do it. Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So think about this in terms of, um, I don't know, I guess career is a, is a good example of this. We talk about the the need for contentment. And so you enter, you enter the workforce and, and you're working, you're, you're seeking to honor the Lord with your work, you're doing things the right way, you're uh, submitting to the authority of your, of your boss, you know, whatever, you're doing, doing all things the right way. Does contentment mean that you should not desire to be promoted and to be elevated in your career? Is that what we mean by contentment? What do you think? And more than yes or no, tell me why you think that. So, um, the idea was, whatever you're doing, I'll, I'll try to summarize this, work heartily as unto the Lord. With, with what you have been given, tend the garden that you've been given, seek to do your best in honoring the Lord with what you do. If that comes with promotion, in, we're talking vocationally, then praise the Lord for that and then tend that garden that He's given you. And if He doesn't, be content with what you have. Is that a fair, a fair summary? Other thoughts on personal ambition, whether it be career or otherwise, or things that you might desire. We've got you know, college students in here. We've we got young people in here on Sunday mornings. I think this is very relevant for them because they're thinking about things like career, marriage, where they're going to live. Does contentment mean, well, just, you know, I mean, y'all are in college, so obviously there's been some sort of desire or ambition. You're furthering your education. That wasn't necessary. So what do we say to, you know, our young people who are on the cusp of 
major life decisions and, and changes coming down the road, when we talk about contentment and thinking about the desires that we have, the ambitions that we have, I don't want to make too big a deal about desire, but we shouldn't discount the desires that we have. God gives us, there are God-given desires that we have. There are um, skills and interests, things that we are particularly well-suited for that are, are given by God. And it, I think it matters what we desire to do. I mean, look at like the, the idea of um, you know, a person aspiring to the office of overseer. It's something that the person should aspire to do. They should desire to do that. It says he desires a noble task. God gives that desire to some men to do. It, it matters whether or not your pastor wants to pastor you. They should desire that. And it, it matters. I don't think it's the only consideration. Just think about what I want. Timothy helped qualify that for us in weighing our motivations. That should be a matter of prayer. Um, it's seeking godly counsel. Uh, it's always helpful to have other godly people weigh in on helping us see what is it I'm equipped for? What, what am I good at? How, what is the Lord suiting me for? Um, but it matters what we desire. And so then what we're saying here is that contentment is not opposed to godly ambition, but contentment is opposed to selfishness. And so, yes, and I think, I think Timothy kind of helped connect those ideas that if our delight is in him, then he is shaping what we desire and enables then us to hold loosely to the things that, that we desire whether they be fulfilled in the way that we thought they were or not. When I was in college, I thought I was uh, on a career path leading me towards federal law enforcement. I joke that children's ministry is not altogether different from law enforcement. Um, so, you know, I got it in a, a much less risky uh, way, I suppose. But uh, in, in meeting my wife, and more importantly, in meeting the Lord, that blew up all of the, the plans and, and desires in a good way. And I can look back on that and see what I have been given and what I was kept from as all being for my good. That's a long way around saying, I don't think the right way to conceptualize the Christian life is choosing what you think is going to make you the most miserable because that has to be like just gutting it out for Jesus is it, Right? That's what I think I'm trying to avoid against. That you, like the assumption that the choice for walking in the will of the Lord is the one that leaves me like miserable. Like, well, this has got to be God's will because I'm just toughing it out for Jesus. I don't think that that really meshes well with the idea of having joy in the Lord. And one of the ways that we experience joy in Him is... He supplies us with the desires for things that He has prepared us for. And we can rejoice in seeing how He has prepared us for the good things that He would have us walk in. Even if it's not what we might have dreamed for ourselves or planned for ourselves. May the Lord open our eyes to see how He is bringing to us things that are good for us that we are suited for. Um, okay. Contentment 
this is another thing that we've touched on a little bit. Contentment is not indifference towards our circumstances. Contentment just, doesn't just say, eh, you know, okay, sera, sera. Contentment is not indifference towards our circumstances, but the right perspective on them and making changes when there are legitimate means and opportunities to do so. This is in Acts 16. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So Paul is challenging the authorities and saying, you violated the law and what you have done. And I think one of the reasons Luke records this story for us in Acts is for a, a record on the public treatment of Christians. Paul doesn't just go, eh, you know, it happens. You win some, you lose some. In this situation, he leverages his Roman citizenship to show them that they had, that they had erred. They, that they had been wrong. So they came and received an apology, and they take them out and leave, ask them to leave the city. So it's not just indifference, like, eh, you know, whatever happens, happens. Where we have opportunity, legitimate means for, for change, whether that be in pursuing a promotion, like we talked about, or in, in being relieved of that suffering. I mean, Timothy's got a car with chronic issues. He's not just driving it around going, well, I guess I, that's... This is just the truck I've got, right? He's trying to get it fixed. He's pursuing legitimate means to be relieved of that. If you have the diagnosis, I mean, I'm not giving you medical advice, but I don't think you're sinning by wanting to you know, have relief by legitimate means of your physical suffering, your material suffering, or in vocational advancement, or, or whatever. So it is having the right perspective on our circumstances and making changes when there are legitimate means and opportunities to do so. Acts 16 is really helpful, because you have Paul there talking about being publicly beaten and uncondemned Roman citizens who were treated this way. But if you rewind to verse 25, which should be in your verse packet, what was, what was Paul and Silas's attitude while facing this unjust treatment? Well, let's see if that's what Acts 16.25 says. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So you see both things going on. You see their contentment in the Lord. They're trusting the Lord to do whatever He will do that is, that is right, while they're also going to exercise the rights that they have as Roman citizens. But that's reflected in Acts 16.25, not as scheming, but as praying and singing to the Lord. They're still providing <clears throat> a testimony. So were there are legitimate means and opportunities to do so, we may seek to change our circumstances. 1 Corinthians 7, 20 and 21. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In, in 1 Corinthians 7, you have this discussion about singleness and servanthood and marriage and 
having the right attitude towards those things. I think discontentment is the attitude that I'm constantly just looking for all the things that I'm dissatisfied with and scheming and working my way towards getting out of those things. Paul tells the bond servant here, don't be concerned about it as, your, as what your primary thought is. That doesn't need to be primary. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Take the opportunities that the Lord gives you that, that come your way, that are legitimate. Weigh your motivations, like, like Timothy's already challenged us with. But the, the primary concern shouldn't be the thing, whether it's the relationship, the job, the suffering, the cancer, whatever. The primary concern, I think, should be the Lord, our commitment and devotion to Him, His glory, and that will help shed light on the circumstances. Um, okay. Finding contentment. Contentment is learned in the Christian life. We read this already from Philippians 4. Paul said that I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. How did he know those things? I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So contentment is not something that we just get, we just arrive at. It's learned in the Christian life through the trials and suffering that come our way. Here are some ways that we, we learn those things. Contentment is learned by experience. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10 so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul suffered greatly in a variety of ways. And I don't know about y'all, but it's easy for me when I think about people in the Bible like Paul to kind of put them on like some superhero level. Like, well, that was Paul. Like, I'm talking about like Tom. We're not talking about superhero, you know, the Marvel Avengers of the Apostles, Paul. We're talking about little old me. Paul learned these things. He learned these things in his own weakness, the sufficiency of Christ's power for him. Then, having learned those things, he said, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because God gave him eyes to see the strength of Christ being magnified in his own weakness. We learn those things by experience. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I would like to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing... I would often like to short-circuit the way that James says that God's going to providentially get us there. 
when you meet trials of various kinds that test your faith, that produce steadfastness, that produces maturity. Experience, as the Lord brings these things to our lives for the testing of our faith, for the maturing of our faith, we are learning contentment. Contentment is learned by what we focus on. By what we focus on. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. One of the easiest ways to continue wallowing in discontentment is by not guarding what we think about, what we're meditating on, what our minds are going and dwelling on. So as we, as we heed this instruction in Philippians 4, 8 and 9, think about things that are, how is it described? Honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. As we think about God and the things of God, our, our focus will help us to learn contentment. You will learn discontentment by focusing purely on your circumstances. So with the help of God, we should train our minds to meditate on the Lord, His Word, His faithfulness. Here's another old dead Puritan quote. You find many people, all of whose thoughts are taken up about what their crosses and afflictions are, They are altogether thinking and speaking of them. It is just with them as with a child who has a sore. His finger is always on the sore. So men's and women's thoughts are always on their afflictions. When they awake in the night, their thoughts are on their afflictions. And when they converse with others, it may be even when they are praying to God, they are thinking of their afflictions. Oh, no marvel that you live a discontented life. If your thoughts are always pouring over such things, you should rather labor to have your thoughts on those things that comfort you. So our, our, our minds, being transformed by the renewing of our minds, means in part that what we are thinking about and meditating on and dwelling on is going to shape our contentment or lack thereof. I thought I saw a... <laughs> Complaining even in death, huh? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, uh, God forbid that we have the reputation of being complainers and grumblers. And I think if we, if we find ourselves being particularly tempted in that way, then one of the first things we need to do is go to a passage like Philippians 4, 8, and 9 and ask the Lord to help us with our thought life, with where our, our minds are going. Because if our minds are constantly directed to the ways in which we are discontent with our suffering, that's going to pour out of our mouths. That's going to to bleed into our relationships. And we will be unpleasant, discontented people if our minds and hearts are constantly on the things that are painful to us. It doesn't mean, again, that we've already said it's not indifference toward our circumstances. 
We should acknowledge our circumstances. And where they are painful, it's okay to pray for relief. But what we're making ultimate is going to reveal, like we've said already, where our motivations are. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the quote here talked about, you know, thinking of our, our afflictions in prayer. One of the things that should be addressed in prayer when it comes to suffering is an awareness of our sin in the midst of it, even as we, as we ask for relief. But then, I was in um, 1 Timothy 2, I think, this week, where uh, Paul is asking for various kinds of prayers to be offered for people. Let me just open that. I'm the world's worst about bad paraphrasing. I, th- I found this really interesting. First of all, this is 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Paul's giving this list of kinds of prayers that he is asking to be offered on behalf of all people, especially those that are in governing authority, and it specifically mentions thanksgivings. My own prayer life, I think, is sorely lacking in thanksgiving, that being thankful for what I have and being grateful for what God has done in me and through me and for me, rather than having my mind set on where I feel the apparent lack. So don't miss gratitude in prayer uh, and in just what our minds are consumed with. Uh, Contentment is learned, moving on in your packet, contentment is learned by listening to truth rather than emotions. If we know the truth of God's word, Romans 8.28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, we need to call that to mind when our feelings tell us God is not working for my good. And this is one big area where the people of God are such a service and ministry to one another. Because you can get in the echo chamber of your own mind and your own temptations, um, spiritual warfare, the enemy breathing out lies, disconnected from the body of Christ, it is much, much easier to listen to things that are not true, things that appeal to the flesh, to our emotions that may be in turmoil. We need to constantly be fed with the truth of the Word of God. And we need one another when we are particularly tempted to close our ears to truth and and listen to things that are appealing to our emotions and our flesh. So we need to listen to truth. We need people to tell us when we are not listening to truth. Contentment is learned as we treasure Christ and all we have in Him. Philippians 4.13, we read that already, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Ephesians, or excuse me, Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is good for people who feel like they're in need who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you're tempted to, you know, say, woe is me, if only I had this, if only I had that. Well, you only have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, you know, woe is you. When we, can, when we learn to treasure Christ and all that we have in Him, which is, you know, we, Michael preached recently on um, Jesus being appointed the heir of all things. What does He do with that inheritance? He pours it out richly on His people. We are not lacking anything we need in Christ. And the more that we know that and treasure that, He will produce contentment in us. And then lastly, let us not waste our suffering by sinning, but by the grace of God at work in us, live with expectant hope in the Lord, knowing, as it says in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So let us not waste our suffering Well, 12 weeks of suffering, and some of us made it. So, thank you for joining me in this excursion through the Word of God on suffering. Any last comments as we close? Like physical suffering? Yeah, um, that... That's a big wisdom area, I think. I, I think I mentioned a book in here, that, that lesson called When Helping Hurts. Um, I think there's a lot of things you've got to consider in that. Who is the person? What is their relationship with you? What, you know, we talked about moral proximity. What is your responsibility to that person? And with the wisdom that you've been provided, what do you think would actually be good for them? That love is selflessly pursuing that person's good. So, what is good and what is best for them may not look the same person to person, situation to situation, and you've also got to take into account your relationship with them. So, I feel like the answer to your question that I would give is, is yes, there are situations where the kind of relief someone is looking for would not be the most loving or helpful thing to do. Um, but, there's countless circumstances and situations that we could give where I think you would need to apply wisdom, discretion, to know what is the right course of action. Yeah, well, in that case, you may have someone who, in the discipline process, the Lord is bringing to them suffering as a means of waking them up to the need for repentance. And... In that situation, yes, I mean, we need to pray for their repentance and trust that if they do belong to the Lord, that He will bring them to that place. Well, why don't we, um, we close in prayer as folks are coming in? Lord, I pray that only the things that are consistent with Your Word would stick in our minds when it comes to thinking about our own suffering, the suffering of others, um, I pray that we would grow in our contentment in you, that as the things that we think and the things that we say and the things that we desire, we're constantly wrestling with the flesh, 
We're constantly needing to check our motivations. Uh, If we were trusting in ourselves and our own hearts and our own affections, we would be lost. Uh, But we thank you for the new nature that you have uh, created in us by your Spirit that you are working to bring about to maturity. And we pray for a reliance on you and your, your work in us to grow in godliness, to grow in faith, to grow in humility, to grow in perseverance, to grow in our trust for you, and that our contentment would be described not just by gutting it out, but really treasuring and loving you more each day so that our joy in you would radiate to others the hope that we have in Christ and be used by you for the proclamation of the gospel and the encouragement of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.